Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. I've been enjoying going to our local relatively newly discovered hotspot to watch migrants, migrant passerines, fly by. There's a gravel parking lot above Dune Peninsula, which is a nice new city park in Tacoma, right near Point Defiance. And Charlie Wright and Will Brooks discovered just in the last few years how special this place is in the spring. It seems for some reason that it funnels birds migrating north right over and around this gravel parking lot as they head out towards the end of Point Defiance and then head on north. And mornings in the spring, especially in late April and May, can just channel large number of migrants on some days. It's not perfectly clear what the best weather is, but Charlie believes, and, and I think he's probably right, that uh, a, a day that has a cool evening and a nice warming pattern through the course of the day with a light, light northerly wind seems to be the best uh, predictor. It also seems to help to have had some poor weather in the days before to add a little piling up effect because it seems at least this spring after several beautiful days in a row the, the numbers taper off. Anyway, it's a whole different kind of birding. Uh, you're basically standing there looking up and looking and listening for any birds you can see. Sometimes they're incredibly far away and sometimes they're just right overhead. Uh, Charlie and Will and people with really good ears can sometimes hear them and identify them by their flight calls. Uh, most of us just look and see if we can figure out what they are. But it's impressive. Uh, there have been some fabulous flights. It seems that this may be the place in the world, in the whole world, that the largest number of western tanagers can be counted passing by. Charlie and Will, a year or two ago, had over 5,000 western tanagers pass by one morning in just a few hours, and they know they missed a lot of them because they were just, you just couldn't be looking in all directions at once. So it was just a huge flight, and it's not at all unusual to see more than 1,000 western tanagers on any given morning, sometimes several thousand. Uh, a whole bunch of other birds come by too, so it makes it really interesting. But it's really hard to tell what they are. I have a heck of a time. Uh, the more talented birders can tell more easily. But uh, some of them are pretty easy. Uh, Black-headed grosbeaks, which seem to come in the latter part of the tanager migration, are much easier to tell. They've got a different shape and color pattern. And then there are a lot of littler birds that fly over. It seems that warbling vireos are pretty common. Uh, Charlie and Will seem to be able to pick those out easily. Yellow-rumped warblers and some other of our western warblers go overhead. Uh, Lazuli buntings, for some reason, which are not common around here, seem to pass over here almost daily uh, in spring. Uh, and if you can pick out their flight calls, like uh, Charlie can, he seems to get a lot of them. But some of them actually land right nearby in the nearby trees and, and get beautiful looks. So it's really pretty exciting uh, kind of birding and uh, new to me and something that is one more wonderful thing about May. Uh, migration is just super cool. There are a lot of questions that come up uh, that are really unanswered with lots of guesses. We're standing around a lot and there are often more than one birder there. So we ask these questions like, why do these western tangers seem to just set down on the top of a tree for two seconds, five seconds, ten seconds, and then take off? I mean, it's not really enough time to get much rest, and they don't appear to be eating anything, so it's just not clear at all. Maybe they're getting reoriented. Maybe they just, if there happens to be a caterpillar there, they'll take it. Uh, we don't know why they stop, but they do. They just stop. Touchdown and go, call them touch and goes. They just stop quickly and then take off usually. Uh, but 
really cool stuff. Uh, this some, this spring, uh, we've had good numbers of American pipits come by also. We've had some western kingbirds and towns, at least one town since Solitaire was there a day that I was there. Uh, and Charlie had a list of 70 species in less than four hours on April 28th. And a lot of his lists are over 50 species since then in May. So it's really a beautiful place to watch migration. Overall, it's been a good spring for migration around here, in my opinion. I got up to the clear cuts near Greenwater on April 29th and found a gray flycatcher. Uh, they were the first county records of those were just a few years ago, and they were in that area. And it seems that uh, the mountain pass going from west to east in that area seems to be a place that a lot of migrant flycatchers and other pass runes travel through. So it's really fun to be there uh, around that time of year. Good friends, Marcus and Heather Roning, you can check out their episode on the podcast uh, some time ago, found a Lewis's woodpecker at a local cemetery. And by far, the biggest mega-migrant was found on Joint Base Lewis-McChord, our local military base, unfortunately in an area where unexploded ordnance, meaning bombs that haven't gone off, uh, can be found. Uh, and so the public is not only not invited, but absolutely not allowed, no matter how much we beg. But there was a Smith's Longspur uh, that showed up there. And a beautiful photo of that uh, by Tim League, the full-time biologist on post. And what a what an unexpected migrant for Pierce County. Super cool. Anyway, the question birders ask ourselves, or at least dream about in North America, is where do I want to be this May? The answer for me this year is North Carolina. My good birdie buddy, Ken and I, Ken Brown and I, he was my first guest on episode number two, are headed for, headed for Hatteras, North Carolina to get on three of Brian Patterson's Gulfstream Blitz, Spring Blitz trips. We're super excited about that. Neither of us have been on a pledge trip on the East Coast, so lots of cool stuff uh, ahead for us. And a day in between each uh, trip we left to be on shore to just enjoy the East Coast migrants and, and breeding birds in that area. Uh, so super excited about that. But in keeping with my, in keeping with migration as a theme for this episode, I couldn't have asked a better guest than Rebecca Heisman. Rebecca just published a new book called Flight Paths this March, which tells the story of the people and the science behind our improved understanding of bird migration. I loved this book. It was so happy when Rebecca be, agreed to be on the podcast. You may have heard about the new modus system for following birds and creatures in migration, or the bird genescape project, or isotope mapping, or proving that birds migrated across the Gulf of Mexico by counting birds as they flew across the, the moon at nighttime uh, using a telescope. All of these stories and a lot more help pull together a nicely organized uh, discussion of how we know what we know about bird migration. Super cool. Think about chasing a radio-tagged bird by car with a with a rigged radio receiver on top of the car to try to chase and follow the bird. That's one of the stories she talks about. The details of these stories and a lot more you can find in the book Flight Pass. But Rebecca has more stories to tell. Let's hear her story on this episode of the Bird Banner Podcast. Help me welcome Rebecca. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I, he I heard about you, really heard about your book. I didn't hear about you. I heard about Flight Pass from a friend and got the book and read it. And wow, it is really a cool book. Uh, a lot of books have been done about uh, migration. There's just a lot of articles and books, but nobody's really taken the angle that that it seems like you took. You you uh, really wrote about the people and the science, sort of, for lack of a better term, behind the progress that's been made in understanding migration. How did you come up with that angle, and and you know how how did this all happen? 
Yeah, I've said a lot that it's not really a book about bird migration so much as it is about how we know what we know about bird migration and the people who study it. And yeah, the backstory of it is that before COVID, I was working full time for the American Ornithological Society, which is the big professional organization for bird scientists in North America. I was their one person communications department. And a lot of what I was doing was reading new research that was being published in their scientific journals and promoting it in various ways, writing press releases and blog posts. And I kept getting fascinated by the methods section of these papers where the scientists would explain how they had actually done the work and the fact that they were studying migration using weather radar and by passively recording the calls of birds going overhead and by analyzing isotopes and feathers. And I just thought all of that was really cool. And I started to wonder what was the science behind how it worked and who figured it out. And so that eventually led to this book. Cool. That's the part of uh, scientific articles that usually nod off as you start to read because they're written in such a boring technical fashion that they're just un- undecipherable. I'm glad that you found that interesting. I think it is interesting, but they're usually written in a very uninteresting way, unlike your book. Uh, so cool. Uh, so you are you had a job with a- AOA, AOS? AO- yeah. AOS, AOS, I guess. And, uh, and uh, that uh, sort of led to seeing a lot of the articles and stuff and and led you to this uh what what brought you to the american ontological society uh, you told me that you're a birder uh how did you know tell me you know your backstory how did you get there how did you get interested in birding become uh you know gather the talents that you have oh uh, it's been kind of a long and winding road i've always been interested in birds and at one point i wanted to be an ornithologist And so I majored in zoology as an undergraduate, and I actually went as far as I was accepted into a master's degree program in natural resources, and then realized kind of at the last moment before I was due to start that graduate program that what I really liked was not doing my own research, it was writing about and talking about other people's research. So I ended up getting into environmental education for a while and eventually got a master's degree in that, so leading hikes and nature programs for for groups of kids, things like that. And then eventually from there, found my way to into science writing and science communication. Okay. Uh, and did you work remotely with AOS uh, or did were you on site? Yeah, I, I worked remotely before, before COVID, before it was cool. I live in a small town in eastern Washington and I was able to work remotely from here. A very cool small town. You live in Walla Walla, don't you? Yes. Do you Great. know Walla Walla? I know Walla Walla. I know Mike Denny and I know red wine. Uh, yeah. I don't know red wine, but I know the red wine from Walla Walla is really good. <laughs> oh, we'll have to talk about that more later. I had no idea you knew Mike Denny. <laughs> sure, sure. Mike was a guest on my show oh, a year or really? two ago. Yeah. Um, my oh, good, my goodness. My good birding buddy, Ken Brown, and I uh, wanted to see the great gray owls that are out uh, near in the mountains near Walla Walla. And Mike is the the whisperer of the owls yes. out there, I think. And, and so it got a hold of Mike, and he took us on a beautiful day of birding out there uh, in the in the foothills. I think of the foothills of the Blue Mountains, I think is yeah. the, what they're called. Uh, and had a great day of birding, and he showed us a secret nest and and the, the nest we were there late they had fledged the nest but we got to see the young begging and the adults come in and feed them and and we sat down uh and it's one of my few uh live in the field podcast episodes we sat down on on the side of a road and what three baby owls are branching on the branches and they'd also come in to feed them and we recorded a podcast while we watched the owls it was really a fun one that's wonderful 
Yeah, cool. Uh, anyway, let's get back to your book, uh, Flight Pass. Tell tell about the book. What's the book about? And uh, yeah, give us a, a rough outline so people know what they're getting into. Yeah, so it is about the history and science behind bird migration research. And so I write in roughly chronological order about each of the major techniques that scientists have used to figure out bird migration. So the first chapter is about banding and the origins of systematic bird banding in North America and how that data has been used over time. And then it goes all the way up through recent high-tech stuff like satellite telemetry and genomic sequencing and things like that. And so each chapter is just how does this work? What's the science behind it? And also what are the stories of the people who figured it out and the people who are using this method now? There's some pretty incredible stories. You know, I, I kind of noticed that there were two sort of common threads. One, that that these real breakthroughs bucked the common common knowledge. You know, birds can't migrate at night. How would they see where they're going? And those little birds can't fly over a, a thousand miles of water. That's, you know, physiologically impossible. Like, you know, it's got to be some other explanation. And, and, you know, crazy things that have been just the understood knowledge, because that was how humans thought about things, uh, that they... You know, a lot of these researchers, for you know, good solid observational reasons, didn't believe those uh, widely accepted truisms. And then, secondly, that they just were dogged. I mean, they just they got an idea and they were not giving it up, and they just worked and worked against you know, often with little support and much ridicule. So, uh, it, were those observations that you? Uh, you know, came to also and, and maybe give an example of two of those things. Yeah, definitely. I think related to that, one thing that struck me as I was working the book is how good ornithologists are at borrowing from advances in other fields. So over and over again, it was like radar was developed for military use in World War II, and then ornithologists figured out that they could use that. And much later, high volume genetic sequencing was developed for the Human Genome Project, and ornithologists were like, wait, how can we use that? So yeah, ornithologists are very creative and very, as you said, dogged in in figuring out the answers to some of these questions. So it's a really fun thing to figure out. Yeah, pro I'm sure that a lot of the reason that they borrow uh, science from a military and, and medicine get a lot of funding to progress the technology. And once it's developed, like everything else, it gets cheaper. Uh, and yeah. Yeah. So really cool. Uh, so of all the things, of all the breakthroughs and all the people that you talk to, give, give a couple of examples of just really cool people and, and great stories. My favorite character, so to speak, in the whole book uh, has to be Bill Cochran, who he was basically the father of wildlife telemetry. So putting radio transmitters on animals so that we could follow their movements. And he did a lot of work with birds. He was good buddies with an ornithologist in Illinois where he lived. And he was active starting in the 1950s and 60s is when he first got interested in this. He was kind of drawn into the world of radio telemetry by the launch of Sputnik, as were a lot of people. And so he was the first person who built radio transmitters small enough that you could put them on a, on, on a bird, on a, on a songbird. So they were, they were doing a lot of work with thrushes, which are a large migratory songbird. But these radio transmitters only had a range of a few miles. So he was doing this work in the 60s and 70s. And if you wanted to be able to follow a bird on migration, you had to be able to literally follow the bird across the landscape. You couldn't just sit at home and, and follow where it was going. So they were doing things like putting radio transmitters on thrushes and then following them 
in small planes as they flew at night or following them across country for a week in a station wagon with a hole cut on the roof for a radio receiver. And he just got up to some really wild adventures in the 60s and 70s doing all of this. Now, I had heard I had heard those stories in bits and pieces, but you put it together nicely in a chapter in your book. That was fun to read about. Uh, for me, some of the yeah, I'm, I'm a chemistry major and so I, uh, mm. in college, not that I know much about chemistry anymore, but I do know about radioisotope, uh, you know, stable isotopes and radioisotopes and that sort of thing a little bit. So those chapters were really just fascinating for me, uh, how they, they uh, what, what did they call it? The, the isotope landscape or the, anyway, it came up with a whole geographic distribution of isotopes and then because... Birders know that uh, birds, many songbirds, molt on their breeding grounds and grow their primary mm -hmm. feathers and keep those primary feathers for non-birders, like the the big feathers on the wings and tail, uh, and, uh, on the wings of the primary feathers. But uh, and they keep them the whole year until they molt them again the next year. So if you get a bird on its wintering grounds and you can take a piece of one of its primary feathers and analyze it, you can tell where it grew that feather. That's like for me, that's like. Wow, really cool stuff. Yeah, I agree. That's one of the ones where way back when I was working at AOS and reading some of these papers, I had never heard of that one before. And I had to figure out how to explain that method in two sentences in a press release that I was writing about the study. And so it, it took me some time to wrap my head around it, but it's really amazing. I think it's better in a half a chapter in your book than two sentences would be. Yeah, definitely. I had a lot more space to dig into it. So did you get a chance to meet many of these uh, researchers in person or did you do, have to do most of this remotely? I did a lot of it remotely and I think that would have been the case even if not for COVID, but I did do a lot of Zoom interviews from my home office, but I did in several cases also get to travel and join researchers in the field. So I got to go to Montana a couple times. I went into the field with some researchers who were capturing long-billed curlews on their nests to put satellite transmitter backpacks on them. I got to go to Illinois where I actually, I actually met Bill Cochran in person. I visited him at his home. He passed away last year at the age of 90. So I feel really lucky that I got to meet him and hear some of his stories myself. Um, and also joined a friend in the field there who was putting modern radio transmitters on rails. And I got to go to Louisiana to join a graduate student in the field who was recapturing Swainson's warblers that he had put geolocators on the previous spring. And these are another type of tracking backpack for birds, except that these you have to actually recapture the bird and get the gizmo back to download the information off of it. They don't transmit anything. So he was going out into the swamp trying to recapture these same little birds that he had caught the previous spring that had since flown to Central America and back. So that was really fun. Yeah, I, those were fun stories in your book, too. The stories of, uh, uh, didn't you tell a story about capturing rails? Yeah, I mentioned the friend I visited in <laughs> Illinois is a rail biologist and she was putting modern day radio transmitters called modus transmitters on these birds. And one of the ways that she catches rails is, it's one of the wildest things I've ever experienced. She slowly drives an ATV, a four wheeler into the, the wetland at night. And on either side of her is a line of, of walk of people walking with headlamps, carrying just hand nets. And so what happens is a rail will flush in front of the four wheeler but they don't fly very high or very far. And once they land, they kind of stay put. So one would flush and we would see it flying a short distance over the surface of the wetland. And we would all just go running after it with our hand net. So just pelting through the wetland after this little bird. And then you go whoop and bring your net down on it when it lands. And that's one way to catch a rail. 
and get a mosquito bite, maybe a snake bite. You know. It was very mosquito-y, yes. <laughs> yeah, the, the things people do for science, you know, yes. Re- really cool stuff. Uh, anyway, uh, some of the researchers seem to have just superhuman stick I mean, they they went through, you know, decades sometimes of, you know, nobody believed them. They were working with little budget. Uh, what were a couple of the stories of just uh, grit and stick or endurance that uh, impressed you most? Yeah, well, I mentioned light level geolocators, which is what that Swainson's Warbler was wearing. And these are little tracking devices that can be very, very, very small because they calculate location based on time and daylight. So they're just a light sensor and a clock and a little memory chip. And these were invented by a penguin biologist in the UK named Rory Wilson as a way of tracking the movements of penguins at sea. And he tried to get other ornithologists interested in these for a decade and just kept being told like, that's that's ridiculous. Those will never be useful. And eventually they took off and now they're widely used by songbird biologists around the world. But he just slogged through years of people kind of mocking this device that he'd created. Another good example is a woman, Kristen Regg, who is now one of the co-leaders of the Bird Gene Escape Project. These are the folks who are using high volume genetic sequencing to study the distribution of bird populations and how they migrate. And she early in, early in her career did not have a full-time you know, tenure track research position anywhere. She was just stringing along grants as an independent researcher trying to do all this herself while also she had a young kid at home that she didn't have regular childcare for. And so really went through a number of years of struggle before having a big breakthrough where she was finally able to map this beautiful genetic variation across the breeding population of Wilson's warblers and show how there were all these distinct populations at different places that you could then, the idea is that you can then pluck a feather from a warbler on migration and do some genetic analysis and see where it started out. But she kept at it for years before she finally got good results. Yeah, this research really uh, seems to be very important for conservation issues. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the birds that we think are all you know, Wilson's warbler, for example. And yeah, I say Wilson's warbler is a Wilson's warbler, isn't it? Well, maybe not. Maybe th- there are you know breeding populations that uh, are pretty. You know, they're not a species by the definition of species that we have now, but they might as well be. They're a, a breeding population that doesn't breed with the populations that are somewhere else. And and uh, and so, you know, from a conservation standpoint, it's really helpful information. Uh, can Do you have any examples of where uh, this conservation information that Give us some hope uh, that that maybe this concert, this information that's gathered and learned is actually helping conservationists to target their efforts. Yeah. So if you've got a declining migratory bird species or a population within a species, if it's a migratory bird, it can be especially hard to figure out where exactly the problem is that's causing this decline, because it could be on its breeding grounds. It could be on its wintering grounds. It could be a problem with a stopover site that they rely on during migration. And so we need this really detailed information on their full annual cycle and where they're spending their time at all parts of the year to be able to pinpoint what the problems are and target effective conservation problems, or excuse me, effective conservation efforts. And I, I went looking for examples, like you say, of really, you know, really clear successes where we've gotten this information and then we've managed to fix the problem. One really good example is Swainson's hawks at one point were declining quite a bit in the West with the Western US and no one could figure out why. And someone finally put a satellite transmitter on one 
and tracked it to an area of South America where they found that there was a very dangerous pesticide being sprayed there that was killing lots of hawks. And so eventually an agreement was put in place to reduce the use of the, the use of this pesticide. There aren't as many really smoking gun examples out there like that as you might think. But I talked to some of the leading scientists sort of working on migratory bird conservation, and they insisted that while we, we, we still need a lot more information on a lot of species, we just don't have this level of detail yet for a lot of birds, they both surprised me a little bit by insisting that they are hopeful that with sustained effort, we will be able to turn around a lot of these declines. Like they're still able to get up and go to work in the morning, believing that they're going to make a difference. And so I thought that was that was comforting. It's good to hear some optimism because yeah. it's uh, pretty easy to be pessimistic these days uh, from an environmental standpoint. Writing a book is a gigantic undertaking. Uh, how did how did that come about? You had a, a job with the AOS, and then somehow that evolved into taking a serious chunk of your life and writing a book. Go through the story, and, and what's it like to write your first book? Well, I left that job in June 2020. And we all, we all know what happened in spring 2020. Uh, a lot of people have probably heard the statistic of the millions of women who left their jobs because they had increased caregiving responsibilities at home. So I had a son who had just turned two hmm. and we pulled him out of childcare as many people did because we didn't really know what to expect at that time. And I was also dealing with some health challenges of my own unrelated to COVID. And so I, I ended up quitting that job and decided to go ahead and write a book proposal. And I finished the book proposal around the end of 2020 and signed a book contract. And I believe it was March of 2021, which was much faster than I was expecting to find an agent and a publisher, but I got very lucky. Congratulations. Then, cool. Yeah. And then, yeah, it was my first book. So I was really, I was really making it up as I, as I went along. It all worked out, but it was a lot of just flying by the seat of my pants, kind of talking to researchers and hoping that the stories would come together and they did. Your writing is good. I mean, you know, I, I, I didn't know what to expect when I got, you know, some, some, uh, some people who write about science can spin a yarn and tell a story and make it fun to read and some can't and you can. So how did, how did you gather those skills? Oh, that's a really good question. Believe it or not, I have never taken a single college class or anything like that in, in writing or journalism. It's all, sort of self-taught. I've always been someone who reads a lot. And when I was working in environmental education for years, back when blogs were more of a cool thing than they are now, I had a natural history blog that I posted to three times a week about the natural history of wherever I was living at the time. And I think just that practice of having of making myself write something two or three times a week for years was, I, writing is just a skill that you can practice like any other. And so I think I sort of was able to teach myself and figure out by trial and error a lot of what worked and what didn't. Wow, you had kind of incredible success for a first-time author finding a publisher so quickly. How did you luck out? Did you, did, did you just know the right people or did you, they just think it's such a great idea, we can't turn it down? I mean, yeah, a lot of it was luck. The stars just sort of aligned. I happened to query an agent who represents a lot of popular science books in kind of a similar vein and thought I had a good idea and wanted to sign me. And then she, you know, knew which editors at which publishing houses were secretly birders and would be interested in publishing something about birds. So she did a really good job finding the right editor to sell it to. So you got an agent basically. Yes. And that was, that was the breakthrough finding the right agent and who was found your proposal interesting and, and also, you know, 
had the right connections and and made it happen. So cool. Cool. How long did it take to write this book from sort of concept to publishing? Well, I started writing the proposal, as I said, in June 2020. And then I started writing the manuscript in earnest in March 2021. I think I turned in the completed manuscripts in May of 2022. And then it came out in March of this year, because even after you finish the manuscript, there's a long process of editing and designing and formatting. So okay, I knew it was new. I didn't realize it was that new. Very cool. Have you been, what are you doing to, to promote the book? I'll, talking to me, that's one thing. What, what other things are you doing that are likely to be more impactful? Yeah. So a lot of people I've talked to have been surprised to learn that publishers usually don't organize and pay for a book tour for you anymore, especially for a you know, a first time non-famous author, a lot of people were like, oh, can you stop by our city on your book tour? I was like, what book tour? But I, I got invited to do a number of talks, different places where people were willing to pay my way. And so I I did end up doing sort of an informal book tour. I've, I've gotten to speak at a couple of bird festivals and a few bookstores in the Northwest where I live. Mm-hmm. And it's been a lot of fun. And yeah, been a lot of podcasts like this. So it's it's been a lot of fun promoting it. I'm on the board of WAS, the Washington Ornithological Society. We're always looking for uh, speakers for our meetings, and most of them are virtual meetings now. So I, you are, you would be a good choice. Uh, you know, talking about uh, talking about this whole, you know, kind of a narrating us the the history of uh, the people and methods behind bird migration research. That okay? I gotta have to put that name forward. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, that'd be fun. How's it going in terms of the book? Is it well received? Uh, so I won't know for quite a while how sales are going. You only get a, you only get statements a couple of times a year, I think. But in terms of reviews, yeah, it seems to be well received. It got a very positive review in the Wall Street Journal, which was wow. very exciting. Yeah, that is. Cool. I mean, yeah, yeah. Talk about a conservative uh, uh, venue for a, a conservation related book. That's wow. Yeah. It was interesting. Yeah. How did they How did they pick your book to review? Is it your agent doing that work or? It was a publicist at HarperCollins who works okay. on sending out okay. copies to potential reviewers. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, do you have another book in mind? Ooh, I have an idea in mind. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it publicly okay. yet. I need to, I need to talk to, to my agent. And you'd be you'd like, have to kill me if you told me. Idea? Okay. Yeah. You'd have to kill me if you told me. I, would, I, I, get I would love to write a second book. Yeah. We'll see. Good, good. Uh, and so what's up in Walla Walla? It's migration now. Uh, Sherbert's come through there pretty well, don't they? Yeah, I have been so busy with book stuff the last couple of months and then had this horrible cold that if I sound kind of hoarse, that's why I'm still getting over it. So I haven't gotten out to do as much birding for the last six weeks or so as I really would have liked to. But I did this week make it out on the local Audubon groups Tuesday morning bird walk. And so the yellow warblers are back, which is great. Mm-hmm. Those are our most common warbler here. And I really enjoy the hummingbirds. So yesterday morning we had a male calliope hummingbird at the feeder in our backyard, which was a lot of fun. So very nice. Calliope has got to be one of my favorite hummingbirds. A little, yeah. tiny, little tiny guy with a goofy gorget that goes way down on the side. Super cool. Yeah, bird. It's a special bird. They are special. Yeah, it's been uh, migration has been uh, picking up here in Tacoma too. Uh, our local Audubon Society does a fundraiser every year, Birdathon. I think a lot of uh, Audubon societies do a Birdathon. Yeah, go birding and uh, try to get people to give some money to the Audubon Society. So I uh, I 
got myself an e-bike for Christmas and I'm Ooh. kind of, a, I'm a timid biker. You know, some of these guys, they ride the streets like they own them. I, that's terrifying to me to city bike. And I live in Tacoma. So I said, I'm going to challenge, I'm going to do my birdathon on my e-bike this year. So I, yesterday was, had a good weather day. So I got out and rode around uh, Tacoma and had an embarrassingly few species of birds, but had a really good time, uh, 32 miles on my e-bike yesterday and got to a bunch of places and had, but yeah, Yellow warbler reminded me. I got a couple of yellow warblers yesterday. I think just the second time this season. So they're just back on territory with the black-throated grays and the Wilsons and the Paxlip flycatchers here. So yeah. we're getting our our neotrophs are coming back, and uh, uh, I don't think any of them have a backpack on. But you never know. I guess you never know. Cool. Rebecca, thanks so much for doing this with me. Uh, in closing, how how could people uh, find your book and how could they reach out to if they wanted to get a hold of you? The book is available wherever books are sold, I think is the standard line. So you can get it on Amazon. You also, I, I always encourage people to support their local bookstore. So if they don't have it in stock, they could certainly order you a copy. And then as far as if you want to keep up with other stuff that I am doing, updates about the book and other projects, I, as a lot of us do, I have a mixed relationship with social media, but the best thing you could do is probably sign up for my email list. So if you go to RebeccaHeisman.com, there's a e thing where you can put in your email and I just send out updates every couple months with stuff I'm writing and events and things like that. Well, terrific, Rebecca. Thanks so much for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. I wish you the best with your book. I encourage people to read it. It's a, definitely a fun read. I, I did it on Kindle. I kind of read everything on Kindle these days. You know, my bookshelf is, is uh, just a mess. And uh, so I like, I like, uh, I like reading on Kindle. So I read your book on Kindle and uh, enjoyed that. Uh, so I encourage people to do that. And it, Stay we may have you as a speaker at WASP. We'll see if that works out. I uh, I don't know what the rules are there about authors and stuff, but I don't know why it wouldn't be a good choice. Anyway, yeah. Rebecca, thanks so much for being on the podcast with me today. You have a great day. Take care. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. By the time this publishes, Ken and I will be well into our pelagic trips from Hatteras, and I hope to tell you a little bit about how that went on the next episode. I also hope I meet some interesting birders uh, on the trips, and maybe some of them will be future guests. We'll find out. So until then, enjoy the spring and summer birding, and good birding. Good day.